0: Welcome to the Hans Kelsen reading series. This is Dr. Nico Beitendach. Before we delve into chapter six of A Pure Theory of Law by Hans Kelsen, I just want to mention that I just published my first book and a bit of shameless self promotion. Uh, the link to the book is in the description for the video or for the podcast episode. It's open access, so you can get the PDF for free if you follow the link. It would mean a lot to me if you check that out, if you download the book. And also, please don't forget to subscribe or like or comment. It really helps the channel and helps grow the conversation that we're trying to have around these works. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get into chapter six of Kelsen's A Pure Theory of Law, and this chapter is titled Law in the State. I think this is not such a long, but a very crucial chapter in A Pure Theory of Law. There are quite a lot of, I think, quite important insights that Kelsen shares here that's part of his theory, and I think they're important. A big part of this chapter is taking on the legal state, or the Rechtsstaat. And Kelsen goes through some effort to try and dispel many of the assumptions that this conception of the law and state has, also it being probably the prevailing theory in, let's say, Western European or, or, or Northern European thinking about the law and the state. So he goes quite at length to dispel many of the assumptions of the legal state. And I think quite a few surprising things come up in this chapter. A big part of this chapter is Kelsen raising two distinctions, kind of traditional distinctions that we make in legal and state theory, and then... Saying how the pure theory undermines those two assumptions and why they are paradoxical and thus untenable for Kelsen's scientific approach. The first thing that he raises and that he tries to unfold is the public and private law distinction, which we'll deal with first. And the second thing is this distinction between the state and law, the political system and the legal system. And Kelsen also has a lot to say about that, as we will see. So before we begin, Kelsen reminds us that he's trying to further a dynamic theory of law, thus not a theory of law referring to its creation, but to its results it's a validity at the end of the day. So the first of these distinctions, this one between public and private, Kelsen has a problem with that. Now he says that this distinction is usually described, you know, as you will probably know, uh, the public law being a kind of a vertical relationship, a hierarchical relationship of the state and its subjects, whereas private law, is horizontal it's intersubject. It's a more equal relationship that governs the law and how norms are created. And he says there's an assumption lying in this that private law is kind of only law. It is contract or agreement. It is when two equal parties bind themselves and create a norm between them. Whereas public law, it's law plus power. There's something extra coming from the state down. There's not so much uh, consensuality involved because there's an element of power. It rests on the state's power to command its subjects and in the sense the legal subject does not participate in the norm creation between him and the state and the public. And therefore, we can say that the difference between private and public law is how a norm is created through consensus or agreement or through command. But Carlson says this is an ideological construct. Firstly, the pure theory doesn't want to divide the law up, but wants to see it as a whole, as a unity that is internally coherent. And in this sense, even private law norms, even agreement, has something of the public inherent to it. Even contract is in some way connected to the law of the state. It's not ever a purely horizontal legal relationship. Thus, this public-private distinction is an ideological one and untenable for Kelsen. He says this ideology functions in two directions. On the one hand, for the state, for public law, it allows for a certain amount of power, as we said, for the state. It secures the state a degree of freedom, a freedom to make an exception, a freedom to make commands, We can think of the state of exception in, you know, Carl Schmitt or Agamben. Uh, Of course, Kelsen also had his famous debate with Carl Schmitt. But, you know, nevertheless, the point is, is that this idea of public law reserves a degree of autonomy for the state to do what it wants, not to follow the law strictly. To politicize what should be legal on the other hand what this distinction also does ideologically is with private law saying that the private law is this completely free sphere of action where equal free legal subjects get to bargain on an equal footing. And he says that's obviously not true. It depoliticizes private law. Think about contract, think about labor law, property law. It's rarely uh, an equal relationship, even in private law. Kelson explicitly refers to capitalism and says that under capitalism, it's very unlikely that two private parties are ever on a equal footing. Remember, we said property, labor law. So this is the first distinction that Kelsen wants to get rid of, this public-private distinction, for the reasons we mentioned. The second distinction, kind of classical distinction that he raises, that he says is common and should be dealt with, is the separation between law and the state. So first he gives an account of the kind of traditional view of this distinction, much as he did with the public-private distinction. So he says the the story of the state, especially the, the legal state, the Reichstag, is kind of a funny one and a contradictory one. So what is the story? He says that we have this kind of narrative or meta-narrative that the state precedes the law, then creates it, and then after that somehow subjects itself to this thing it just created. Meaning, practically, that the state makes itself subject to rights and obligations as it does for its subjects. This is the Typical story. And this, this story is too weird for Kelsen. There's too much of a contradiction in this. What, what is the state? Is it somehow this kind of meta body, organization, society that can create law and then subject itself to it after that? That doesn't make sense to Kelsen because he says this is Pure ideology, and it serves an ideological function. It's not a correct or scientific description. And what is the function of this ideology? The first part of that is that the state has to show that it is somehow separate from the legal order. You know, there's politics or the state, and there's law in order to justify both itself and the legal system. So there's something about self-justification or legitimacy at play here. And again, there's also an important function that it plays for law ideologically, namely that the law has to present itself as something being separate from power It's not politics. It's cold, reasonable law. And there's another contradiction in this. We just spoke of the the state of exception. So the state is somehow a subject to the law that it created itself. But also when it wants to, it can enter into the exception. The state of exception. You know, the... This ideology lets the state have it both ways, right? It's logical, logically contradictory. And Kelsen says this contradiction is able to exist quite easily. Um, the words he uses is it never causes any serious embarrassment for the state or for state theory. Why? Because it's never meant to be a scientific description. It is an ideological description, ideological construct, and thus, he says, never meant to truly explain something, it's not meant to create knowledge, it's only there to justify, to underline, to strengthen the state's authority. So this is the ideology of the state law distinction that Kelsen criticizes, so... What does he say is the true relationship he says at its core the state is a coercive power it uses power to coerce coercive order remember in the previous chapters we spoke a lot about coercive orders the second point talking about the modern state is that it's centralized and then he goes on a bit to define what constitutes the modern state as opposed to Uh, older pre-state polities or societies. And on the other hand, he also contrasts this with public international law. So he says that the modern state is firstly a, a centralized coercive order. In older societies, this was not as, centralized in public international law it's obviously not centralized at all um therefore the state is a is a special modern construction and it's defined and he gives a quite a classical definition of consisting of quite traditional elements of what consists of a state apart from it's the centralization it's the population, its territory, its power, as he calls it. Effective government would be perhaps a, a more standard way of describing it. But I think he means basically the same thing there. And then he goes on to discuss each of these three elements of the state. So he says, firstly, what is the the people, the population of a modern state? How do we understand that? And he says... Uh, you know, kind of nationalistic descriptions that we are used to, and I want to say it's a kind of a, a modern thing, but probably in so-called post-modernity we're seeing this kind of argument come back with a lot of force. He says that we cannot de- describe or define the population of a state through Something like ethnicity, language, race, uh, you know, the the German idea of folk, the people. He says this also just contains too many exceptions to make sense of. There's nothing like a national feeling that makes me South African or Austrian or French or whatever. He says a population of a state has to be defined quite simply as that collection of people that fall under the same normative, coercive order. These are the subjects of that order. What language they speak, what religious belief they had, what ethnicity they are, their cultural history is not useful for us. The point is, whoever falls under the coercive order are subjects of the same state. Purely legal definition of population. The next element is territory. So he says, obviously, it has to be limited spatially. And this is defined quite easily, not with reference to, to borders or boundaries, as we might usually do. Kelsen says, this is the, the spatial area in which this legal coercive order of the state is valid, where they are able to enforce and apply it. So it's a pure kind of empirical question of validity for him it's not necessarily something to be found on a map. He also kind of mentions that what people often forget is that states are obviously spatially limited, but also temporally limited. You know, no state lasts forever. Uh, Most of them have a, I think in modernity we can find quite specific start dates for most of the, the modern states, I think it's also a public holiday for most countries when they gain independence or something like that, the day of revolution, whatever the anniversary of that. Um, and he says, well, obviously, all all states must come to an end eventually too. Uh, so just as an interesting part, he says, you know, there's also a, a temporal limit to to states but we don't often talk about that. Then the final third element of a state, it's power. So this is the power to make its order valid, the validity of the normative order, right? And he says this is also found in quite literal material things. You know, he talks about prisons, armies, policemen, guns, weapons, this is the power of this state, of this coercive order, to enforce its norms. I think today we talk about something more like effective governance. Uh, for Kelson, it's are you applying norms that have validity? Are they being followed? And how do you follow them through coercion? How do you do that through these material? uh requirements all quite violent naturally uh violent means of getting validity for your norms coercion you know there's quite a bit of a like proto-foucauldian element here so that's the definition of the modern state and he says legally it shares a lot of similarities with other juristic persons like corporations in the sense that it's a, it's a kind of a fiction, right? Made up of human beings acting, many human beings acting in different ways, and that their acts are attributed not to themselves, but to this juristic fiction, this juristic person and that the unity of all these millions of actors and actions are observed by us. We impute the actions of individual men or women to this idea that we have of the state, much like we do with a corporation, as we saw in previous chapters. So the state is a firstly, a kind of a, a mental construct to unify and attribute a vast collection of human action and activity. And then Carlson also says, in a certain sense, you know, we shouldn't talk of the legal state or the Rechtsstaat, but that a lot of what, the, what we imagine is the state, a lot of what it's doing is administrative, not legal. Necessarily, So in a certain sense, we're better off talking about the administrative state rather than the legal state, even in a democracy. Attribution does a lot of work because. You know, we have this fiction of what this guy is doing in this office. Is not him. It's the state doing that. How do we explain that? He says in a democracy. It, concept like representation, also a kind of fiction, right, is used to justify this attribution. You know, he's doing it because he's representing all of us. You know, I have to go to work today. I can't be focused on the minutiae of running our state. Therefore, I ask someone to represent me. Or my community in doing that, this is a a kind of attributive of fiction that is at work, yes, in democracies, you could also say in autocratic or fascist countries it's also the the leader is often described as the embodiment or the representative of the entire population, even though he acts, you know, with a lot of agency, with a lot of freedom to do what he wants. He's representing everyone's interest in doing that. And this is also why it's, it's difficult for Carlson to talk about the self-regulation of the state. Remember the state submitting itself to its own laws, um, the legal state, because Kelsen says laws are just often administrative actions taken by individuals or a small group of individual men or women that we fictionally attribute to the state. And then later, if the state submits itself to this law, it's again the actions of a group of people. And then we attribute their actions to the state. And this first part gets applied to the second part, and rights and obligations occur, are manifested. And this is a very complex network of individual actions and attributions. And we are only imposing a unity on it through our minds calling it the state, and the state is submitting itself. It's not literally the case. The ca- The state is not this super organ that can do that. And that's why he said the, the Reichstag concept doesn't refer really to him, to a, a, a state that submits itself to law, because it's not completely possible. He says what legal state Reichstag really means it. it's kind of a vague reference to a country that's democratic. And we can plausibly say that the laws or the norms of the existing coercive order are created through democratic representation. He says that's what it really means. So obviously, Kelsen wants to get rid of this distinction between law and the state. He says it's a f- ideological fiction. It's not scientifically or empirically true. He says the state itself is nothing more and nothing less than this coercive order, coercive normative order. And that the state is the juristic personification, like a company, of this order. So in other words, the state and the law is the same. We cannot separate it. It's one. It's literally one and the same thing. The law is not separate. It is a coercive order that we call the state. And on the other side, the state is not governed by law. The state is the law. The community, as we saw, the, the population element, the territory element, the people in their unity is defined and created by the law. It's constituted by the law and thus constitutes the state. It's all one thing. And at this point, he equates any idea of a Rachstadt to natural law. He says this is some weird transcendent appeal to talk of a Rachstadt. It's not true. So in summary, Carlson criticizes the legal state on two important counts here. The first is this public private distinction where he shows that it's an ideological distinction that serves to hide power relations, or, in the case of public law, to justify that power relation, and that it's purely ideological, and, strictly speaking, we have to get rid of that distinction. On the other hand, this distinction between state and law, again, it's much like public and private, this distinction between law and power, that this is also a false distinction. And that we can't speak of law and the state, but the law is the state and the state is law. And he caps this off with the final sentence, which I think is quite interesting, which deserves reading in its entirety, he says, this critical abolition of the dualism of state and law also represents the most radical annihilation of one of the most effective ideologies of legitimation. Hence, the passionate resistance with which traditional theory of law and state opposes the doctrine of the identity of the state and law as founded by the pure theory of law. So he says, this is the true definition or relationship between law and state, public and private. And he thinks it's a very incisive critique, cutting critique. And I guess from that sentence, we can assume that he got criticized a lot for it. And he says that, those who criticised him are trying to defend some kind of ideology that's untenable. So that's it for for this week. Now we only have, I think, two chapters left: one on international law and one on interpretation. Then we're done, and then we're finishing with the interview with our Kelsen expert, the world Kelsen expert, uh, Lars Vinks. I'm looking forward to that. So, we're almost finished. Thank you very much, and see you again soon. Bye bye.